0: There were just some things that you'd never forget. For me, one of them was when I was 18 years old and on a student trip down to Boston from my school in Maine. My art teacher was taking us just a handful of art-loving students on a private trip to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. My mother, who was from a long line of Bostonians, made sure I went on this particular trip. You won't believe it is all she said as she dropped me off to wait to be picked up by the van after navigating midday boston traffic we arrived at the gardner museum tucked along the marshy fenway behind boston's museum of fine arts standing outside in front of the building i I was a bit unimpressed in that 18 year old way what stood before me were great tall stone colored walls nearly unadorned without any decoration, rising above me to create a boxy, subdued, seemingly unremarkable mass. This is a Venetian palace, I thought. Entering the museum and proceeding through a few small first-floor galleries, I clutched the wrist strap of my 1970s Instamatic camera with the requisite bag of flash cubes, which of course, needless to say, went unused that day. As I wandered, half listening to my teacher, but with a growing fascination with the eclectic objects I was seeing, I I really wasn't sure what was next. And I certainly wasn't prepared for it when it arrived. Turning into a dark, cloister-like hall as the bright noonday sun cast shadows on the columns on my left and flooded my path with light, I saw it. At the center of the museum is the Great Courtyard, a soaring four-story space in almost pinkish stone rising toward the sky. Covered by a glass ceiling, and as they ascended, these almost rose-colored walls were punctuated with arches and balconies and windows from the Venetian Renaissance. All around were plants and trees, from palms to grasses to flowering orchids bordering an intricately laid Roman marble mosaic floor with an image of Medusa at its center. The Medusa mosaic was accented at its corners by towering columns also from the ancient world. It all comes on you as a surprise, and you gasp as if you have discovered the rarest and most beautiful flower that blooms only once a year. It's impossible to look away. And even today, after having seen it many times since, I have never forgotten seeing it for the very first time. This stunning, soaring courtyard was one thing, but the galleries and rooms off it were something else entirely. Each carried a different theme. The Dutch room, the Titian room, the early Italian room, the Raphael room, the Gothic room, and the great long tapestry room. The galleries are laid out in accordance with their creator's design and wishes. Nothing has ever changed, and they hold over 7,500 works of art, some of which are the rarest of treasures. Paintings by Titian and Rembrandt, Velasquez and Sargent, Botticelli and McKnight, Whistler and Fra Angelico along with ancient Near and Far Eastern prints, carvings and bronzes, as well as furniture and sculpture and textiles from 18th century Europe, from the French to the Spanish, and so, so much more. This palace itself, it's really more than a museum, was indeed created from bits of architectural salvage from real chateaus and palaces and ruins from Rome to the Renaissance, and was the vision of a single, quite remarkable, Gilded Age woman. My guest today shares the story of just who Isabella Stewart Gardner was and how this extraordinary place and space came to be. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we journey into corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Isabella Stewart Gardner was born in early 19th century New York into a good family with ample wealth and married a Bostonian gentleman of appropriate financial and social standing. Isabella Stewart Gardner didn't start out collecting art, nor even thinking that she would ever create one of the most extraordinarily personal and unique collections. A collection which in fact actually became a revolutionary vision for what a museum could be. She was meant to be a wife of good society and follow the prescribed rule book of the day. But Isabella Stewart Gardner didn't follow all the rules. And you could say passion and even tragedy forced her to refocus how she was to define her ultimate legacy. Certainly no woman up to this time had the insight, foresight, and drive to create a collection and a museum this daring. Most importantly, perhaps, Isabella Stewart Gardner didn't create and curate her collection so she alone could revel in its value and beauty and privacy. Quite the contrary, Isabella Stewart Gardner collected and curated her treasures so everyone else could see them too. And as a result, with her innovative planning, we can still see them as she did today. The night of January 1st, 1903 was a cold one by Boston standards, and the skies even threatened snow. By 9 p.m., a long line of carriages had formed in front of the newly constructed Palace Fenway Court and was discharging fashionably dressed passengers who scurried quickly inside to stay warm. Isabella Stewart Gardner, known to some as Mrs. Jack, using her husband's name, was hosting the opening of her museum. This grand building, covered and hidden by construction barriers for years, had steadily risen since ground had been broken in 1898 in this somewhat remote area of marshy parkland near the center of Boston. But now the barriers had been taken away, and a grand Venetian palace had been revealed. Gardner's friends, as well as the critics of both art and society, were anxious to see what had been created and what was being unveiled that night. As Mozart was played by the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Isabella received her guests at the top of the stairs at one end of her palace's grand courtyard. Dressed in black, wearing her famous long ropes of 149 pearls and her jaw-dropping diamonds that were whispered about in back bay drawing rooms, Isabella Stewart Gardner greeted Boston's elite. It's been written that Boston Brahmins from the esteemed Harvard art historian Charles Eliot Norton to William James, Henry James' own brother, were astonished by what they saw. Throughout her life, Isabella Stewart Gardner was a woman known for defying convention. She had been called eccentric, which in the parlance of 19th-century New England could place you somewhere between a fallen woman and an imagined practitioner of darker arts. Isabella Stewart Gardner was neither. Rather, she raised Bostonian brows by abandoning hoop skirts and wore the new Parisian fashions of Charles Worth long before any proper Beacon Hill lady would have considered it. Newspapers carried the famous story of her walk in public one day with a lion named Rex at her side, as well as her wearing of a headband celebrating the Boston Red Sox to a performance of the Boston Symphony, which raised eyebrows and discussion. Furthermore, at that opening reception to her museum on that January night, she served the requisite champagne, of course, accompanied, however, by donuts. She no doubt took great pleasure at being covered in the press and contributing to an image of a society woman whom one never quite knew what she would do next. Isabella left us very little to clarify what her private thoughts were and how she really summed up her interior life. But for us today, all we really have is the extraordinary museum that she created, but in carefully looking at her palace and the collections, we can indeed, in one way or another, at least see some of her. But just who was Isabella Stewart Gardner? She is the subject of a new biography, the first in decades, and the first supported by a foundation of modern scholarship. This new biography examines her life in a social context and clarifies what we can perhaps really know of this slightly elusive and sometimes reclusive woman of the Gilded Age and what may forever be only imagination and conjecture. My guest today is a member of the curatorial staff at the Isabella Stewart Gardner and has co-authored this new biography in an attempt to tell the tale through a lens of today. I am deeply honored to welcome Diana Steve Greenwald to The Gilded Gentleman. Diana is currently the William and Leah Pourvu curator of the collection at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Prior to joining The Gardener, she was postdoctoral curatorial fellow at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. Diana is a historian of both art and economics. Her first book on 19th century art was published by Princeton University Press in 2021. She holds degrees in social history from Oxford University and Columbia University. She and her co-author, Nathaniel Silver, have just published a new and important biography of Isabella Stewart Gardner. Isabella Stewart Gardner, A Life, has just been published by Princeton University Press. Diana, I am so very honored to have you join the Gilded Gentlemen today. Thank you so much for being here.
1: I'm thrilled to be here. So, Diana,
0: this show could really be in so many ways a show about the art of biography, I think, in and of itself, what a biography can and can't tell us, and what we make of the facts that we do and that we don't have. But there is no question that we have a complex, a controversial, and certainly curious on so many levels subject to talk about uh, today. But I'd like to start by putting this new biography that you and Nat have just done in a little bit of of context. So there have been three major biographies written on Isabella Stewart Gardner. There was one shortly after her death in the 20s. There was one that some consider a classic, certainly in quotation marks, in the 60s. And then there was another look at her life that was published in the late 90s. But now we have your work. So, Let's just start with why a new biography and why now?
1: Of the three you mentioned, it's actually only the first one um, from 1925 that was published by the museum itself um, and written by a staff member of the museum, in that case, the museum's first director, Morris Carter. So for all the three biographies, it turns out that Gardner's own museum had only issued one biography and it was almost 100 years old um, by the time we started working on this. The other reason we really wanted to write this book is that as the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum kind of enters into the 21st century, we have, you know, we have a new building that was built about a decade ago. We have a really ambitious exhibition program. We realized that we needed kind of a shared touchstones as an institution for understanding who our founder was, what her mission was, and how that really intersects with our own strategic plans. And the other thing I'll say about the other biographies, you know, which are valuable resources, but I think what they don't always make clear is how little we actually can know about Gardner's opinions and the kind of limited um, primary source evidence that does exist. So we also just wanted to be really upfront as sort of the stewards of Gardner's museum, and to a certain extent, her legacy tied to that museum, about the myth that's always swirled around her and uh, the kind of limits of those myths.
0: I think it will be fascinating to a number of listeners to realize that Isabella herself really left us with very little personal writing. There were a number of letters that were destroyed. She didn't keep confessional diaries. And then there was a press that just anxiously reported on some of her more sensational and you could even say outrageous certainly for the time behavior so with given all of that just who diana was she
1: you know it's a it's a really great question and we can talk about some of the you know basic outlines of her life she was born in new york in 1840 she ends up marrying a kind of rich bostonian jack gardner in 1860 but she was a showperson, I think, at her core is really who she was. So when you mentioned about her editing what she left behind, you know, she actually specifically asked people to burn her letters. We do have some primary source evidence in the form of, of her records around travel that she created, I think, when she was well, she created when she was younger, before she had the idea of the museum in her mind. And I think she was a little bit less self-consciously editing what she left in her wake in terms of historic record. But it's pretty clear by um, the 1890s, when she and her husband, Jack, become kind of major art collectors, that she's really cultivating a personality around herself, a public persona. Honestly, you could probably even date it a decade earlier that protects, I think, any sort of, like you said, private confessional sense. It's more that she has a, a wall up around herself of kind of outlandish things like Walking a lion through Copley Square, or wearing Red Sox gear to the to the Boston Symphony Orchestra, um, and she wants that to a certain extent to be her historical record, not the kind of private core that might have th- that we know lay behind that, um, but she protected quite carefully.
0: What do you think is the greatest misconception about Isabella Stewart Gardner?
1: I think the greatest misconception is that she was frivolous. You know, you mentioned kind of the prior biographies, and I actually think both in the coverage of her own time, there's quite a bit of sexism about her, that her interests were just kind of folly, that she was a dilettante, that she was a bit of a silly woman. And that actually is carried through to some of the other biographies that have come out. She wasn't frivolous at all. You know, she was a student of what she collected. She was passionate about reading all sorts of subjects about her museum. She stewarded it with like the utmost care. So she was certainly, like I said, a show person, but it doesn't mean there wasn't a seriousness of mission behind that.
0: Well, maybe the theatricality was to draw attention to what she really cared about. Who knows? We can only surmise that, I suppose.
1: Absolutely. And I will say for women of the 19th century, and she's a woman who certainly defied gender expectations. The eccentricity is also kind of a uh, an armor that lets you do what you want to do, right? If you act outlandish, Absolutely. you can kind of um, achieve maybe what you aim to achieve at the outset.
0: And when you mention the word frivolous, it's interesting because many other great female artists have, were called the same thing. You know, their work was written off and really unfortunate, certainly, with our eyes today. So let's get into the biography a little bit. And and you had mentioned this, but I think it's really going to also surprise some listeners to learn that Isabella, because she's so identified with Boston, that she actually wasn't a Bostonian. She was a New Yorker. So how, in your opinion, did that influence her? And then how did she meet Jack Gardner and then transition into becoming a Bostonian? How did all that work?
1: Yeah, so she was a New Yorker, um... So she's born in New York City in 1840 to, I would say, a a relatively upwardly mobile family. So she is certainly from a a well-off milieu, but it's really her father, who had been apprenticed to a dry goods merchant um, around the age of 14, who makes the family fortune and ends up investing quite a bit in things like iron production and mining and whatnot. So part of that kind of, I would say, upward economic mobility is that her father, parents want her to be, have all the trappings of kind of a a socially elite person. So they sent her to France as a teenager to go to a Protestant girls finishing school in Paris. And that's actually where she meets Julia Gardner, who is the younger sister of Jack Gardner, her future husband. Now we know that she and Jack probably crossed paths uh, in Italy, sometime while sort of she was studying. So in the late 1850s, she seems to have not made much of an impression on that trip. But then she came to visit Julia when they were both back in the States, um, up in Boston. And it seems like the whole Gardner family and obviously particularly Jack were smitten with her. And so they ended up getting married, um, when she was, when she was 20, uh, in 1860.
0: Now at the height of her art collecting. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we're coming back. At the height of her art collecting, she really was spending millions and millions of dollars in today's money on paintings and works of art. And of course, she spent lavishly creating the museum. Can you talk a little bit about where her wealth came from and how that evolved? Because there were some surprises in that story, too.
1: Among our goals was to be able to respond to questions that visitors often ask us. And you've just asked one of the top ones, which is, where does the money come from? Um, and the simple, everyone
0: wants to know in the gilded age, right? Where and, did the money come from? Exactly.
1: Everyone wants to know. Um, and you know, the simple, the simple answer is that she and Jack were both heirs, but that's obviously not necessarily the end of the story. I'll actually start on his side. So Jack Gardner is part of kind of a major Massachusetts um, mercantile family that's engaged in the China trade, um, in trading things like Sumatra and peppercorns, then in the Dutch East Indies, currently, you know, current day Indonesia. And his, by the time he enters the business uh, in the 1860s, he'd gone to Harvard briefly and then leaves and, and enters the family business. His family has really started to diversify away from sort of actual shipping and whatnot and invest in real estate at railroads. And, you know, your podcast is all about the Guild of Age. They are a family who already has quite a bit of capital, but then it just kind of takes off when they're able to invest in an industrializing United States. So on his side, she comes from a relatively, well, you put it this way. She's not from an exceptionally well-off family, but she's certainly from a privileged family. And something that we were able to dig into is we wanted to trace her wealth all the way back to her great grandparents. So Isabelle is from, you know, a reasonably privileged family, but not a not one that has wealth kind of of the scale and age of the gardeners. So most of the money in her family ends up coming from her father. He is apprenticed to a to a mercantile mercantile house that involves and kind of involves sort of textile trading primarily in the early part of the 19th century. And like the gardeners, he in the 1860s kind of sees the writing on the wall that uh, industrialization is happening. With the help of one of his in laws, actually, who is curious in politics in Ohio, he ends up investing in a number of things, and this really kind of explodes the family wealth on her side. Now, the other kind of reason that she ends up as rich as she does, um, because she ends up inheriting from her father in the early 1890s, is she's the only surviving child. So she's one of three. And when he passes away, she's his only heir. Uh, And she ends up inheriting in today's dollars about $78 million. And I should say that's really the core of where the money comes from to pay for the museum. Their kind of rule amongst the couple was that they lived off of Jack's money and they spent all of Isabella's money on art. That sounds
0: like a great arrangement,
1: so to that point, how
0: and when did she and and Jack at that point how did she begin to seriously collect art, and how did she educate herself about art?
1: That's a great question and um there Are a couple of twists and turns in her life, and I'm sure we'll go into them, but I'll say one thing is that she and Jack had trouble having children. They actually only had one child who sadly died just shy of his second birthday. And once it became clear that they weren't going to have children, she really threw herself into other pursuits. You know, it's to a certain extent, sort of the great failure of, of a 19th century woman, particularly an elite 19th century woman, to not produce children. And so she finds other outlets for what she wants to do and study and contribute. And this is where I think Boston comes in quite handy. It turns out that she was able to audit classes uh, at Harvard through something called the Harvard Annex, which is a bit of a precursor to Radcliffe College, which was Harvard's Women's College. And she ends up taking lots of classes about Italian Renaissance culture. I often say her gateway drug was Dante. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Very into reading
1: Dante and collecting volumes of Dante. She starts as a book collector, do them these classes around 1882, 1883 with the, with a pioneering Italian art and literature scholar called Charles Elliot Norton. And this really becomes the kind of crucible of her interest in art history. Uh, we actually still have her, her notebook. From that class where she's taking notes on artists like Blué and uh, Donatello. And so we know this is where she starts to learn about art. And she also travels enormously, which is kind of the, the supplement, the like lived experience that helps her with this learning process. And I definitely want to dive in
0: now to the subject of her travels, partly because I find some aspects of it incredibly fascinating. And also, am I correct, you are curating now a soon-to-be-unveiled exhibition of her travel diaries and albums. Am I right about
1: that? You are correct about that. Yes, uh, starting on February 16th. So Isabel Stewart Gardner was a hugely intrepid traveler. If we use contemporary borders, she went to about 39 countries, contemporary meaning 21st century, um, kind of hard to, to count countries over the years that she's traveling. A lot of borders are in flux. And she went all over the place. She often, you know, always with Jack. They actually spent a year going around the globe and traveling through Asia. They sailed from San Francisco to Japan. They went through China. They went through Southeast Asia. They went to India. They ended up then taking a steamer that would get them to, to Italy uh, via Yemen. So that's just an example. I mean, she went all through Europe. She went all through Scandinavia. So she is probably one of the better traveled um, 19th century American women, certainly who never, certainly for someone who never actually lived abroad full time as an adult. Uh, It's pretty impressive. She also, I'd say, If you look at Isabella's collage travel albums, we see just how frank and excited she is about all of the things that she's seeing. She's kind of collecting mementos in the form of photographs and found papers and pressed flowers along the way. And so she creates this incredible visual record, one of the richest kind of archives we have about her reactions to anything Really. So it's pretty exciting. Also, say her, she never complains. She's always excited to like ride a donkey 25 miles to get somewhere. And then you look at Jack's diary side by side and he's like, it's so hot. I'm so (laughs) tired. I'm paraphrasing, but that's more or less what he's saying.
0: Well, and she wrote an elephant. And I I mean, she really had some extraordinary experiences. And I was, when I was reading this, I thought this was really. Fascinating, because so many gilded age women of of wealth and position—you know—they were going to Paris, they were going to Italy, they were—and she did all of those things, of course. But she was in Cambodia and Egypt and India. And I mean, this was this really says something about her or their curiosity. Is that is that a, is that a fair assessment?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Their curiosity and and openness, really, to um to seeing the world and that. It was not just Europe that had kind of culture and insight to contribute and to to learn about. And
0: I think that's an enormously important point when we look at the collection of the museum and what she presented to the world, because instead of just Western European based art, she was had bought and, and displaying things from the Near East, the Far East, these ancient cultures that really were not there wasn't a lot of attention paid to things at, uh, of that sort at the time. Am I correct there, too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, something that we learned through working on this biography and in preparing the show that will open in February about her travel albums, she it, we are a global collection. She was interested in art and culture around the world, and that's actually reflected in our collection. Going back to kind of past scholarship on her and on the museum, it's often focused on Italy and on the Italian Renaissance. And she's absolutely a trailblazer in terms of that kind of collecting. But that's that oversimplifies the content of our collection. And also she was really ahead of the curve in collecting things like Chinese antiquities. You know, she buys some of the first really major, uh, she buys a major Buddhist steli which is still in our, which is in our collection today, which is a hugely important object. And she's buying it, you know, a decade or more before really anyone else is getting excited, in the United States, I should say, is getting excited about Chinese art.
0: And with that, Diana and I are going to take a brief break and we'll be back to continue the story of Isabella Stewart Gardner and her famous museum. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and today I am joined by author and curator Diana Sieve Greenwald to celebrate the publication of her co-authored new book on the life of Isabella Stewart Gardner. One of the places that was so important to her and to which she returned again and again was Venice. And certainly in her creation of the Museum of the Palace, she did her own recreation of of Venice. Can you talk a little bit about what her relationship with Venice was and why it was meaningful to her?
1: I will start with just sort of a segue from the global kind of aspect. Something else I think people don't always realize is she went to Venice for the first time as an adult. She'd been as a teenager with her family, but as an adult after this year spent in Asia, right? So Venice is a city that really has had a long history of trade between East and West, and she approaches it from the East, which I think is really different than the standard like grand tour path that many of her peers were taking. Um, So I think there's that. And I think in a lot of ways, Venice was for her kind of a synthesis of many different cultures that she found interesting. Now she went back again and again and again, she and Jack go back kind of roughly every two years throughout the 1890s. They stay at a place called the Palazzo Barbaro, which is owned by an American expatriate family called the Curtises. Henry James hangs out there, John Singer Sargent, Anders Zorn, the Swedish painter. There's a whole kind of circle of intellectuals and artists around the Palazzo Barbaro, and Isabella loves being at the center of it. In terms of the creation of the museum, and I said, I think like Venice for her really was a synthesis of many things and cultures that she was interested in. So our central courtyard is full of windows and balconies that she actually purchased from a Venetian palazzo. So it's the literal parts of a facade of a palazzo that um, she embedded into her museum to create her own own palace in the Fens.
0: One of her most important professional relationships was with the art historian Bernard Berenson. And can you talk a little bit about who he was for listeners that might not be familiar with him and how they met and what the connection between the two of them really was? Because that's some really fascinating material, I think.
1: So Bernard Berenson is really one of the pioneers of um, art history as we know it today. He was a student at Harvard in the 1880s, the early 1880s. That's actually how Gardner met him. They have kind of an exceptional beginning to their relationship. So again, he's the college student, they're both either they're sort of in the same class or they're just kind of in the orbit of that art of another art historian named Charles Elliot Norton, who I think I mentioned before, who's kind of Gardner's um, initial guide to art history. Berenson is immediately distinguishes himself as an exceptional student and he applies for a fellowship to travel um, to Europe to further his education. Uh, he actually got passed over for that fellowship because he was Jewish. Uh, Norton was a, an infamous anti-Semite, and it was actually Gardner, along with two other friends, who then paid for Berenson to go to Europe. And so in the next kind of decade, between roughly 1883 and the mid-1890s, Berenson becomes the leading scholar of Italian Renaissance art. He writes some of the first real kind of textbooks that we would think of becomes a major connoisseur where he's attributing certain works to certain artists because a lot of Italian Renaissance art isn't signed. Many of those attributions have held up today. And so he really lays the groundwork for Italian Renaissance art to be part of our canon, you know, in the United States and, and around the world. So the kind of good deed that Gardner does by sponsoring Berenson in the 1880s, came back to her around 1894. Berenson sends her a copy of his first book and they get back in touch and he quickly becomes her principal art advisor. So he helps her acquire the first Botticelli in America in 1894, the first Raphael in America. Um, the list goes on and on. And they corresponded for decades. They became close friends occasional dispute over how he's sourcing art to her and if there are commissions being made. But her letters to him are also pretty much our principal cache of archive because he, unlike others, did not, in fact, burn her letters. So we have a full back and forth about her building of the collection and her opinions on the art that he's offering her.
0: Now, there were some other men in her life, again, professional, that were fascinating, and two of them painted her. One of the great relationships, I think, was John Singer Sargent. There are two fascinating portraits when when I think of the portraits that are done of of Gardner, I think of the the famous one he did where she's uh, have her hands clasped in front of her in the black simple black dress with the pearls, and then of course the one at the end of her life where she's shrouded in white. There was also the Anders Zorn where you see her bursting in from a balcony in Venice. Can you talk about her connection to Sargent because that was very important to her, correct?
1: So she and John Singer Sargent met for the first time around 1886. So um, at this point, Sargent, uh, and for those on the podcast who may be fans of John Singer Sargent or may not know him, um, he's kind of the leading, he would go on to become the leading Gilded Age portraitist. And um, he's just kind of an exceptional painter. He had painted a painting while he was still living in Paris in 1884 called Madame X, it's in the Met today, if you happen to be in New York and can see it. It created a lot of scandal. Basically, the sitter is accused of being a loose woman. And Sargent, in the midst of the scandal, actually moves from Paris to London, taking this infamous portrait with him. In standard fashion, Isabelle Stewart Gardner loves this story, loves the scandal, and specifically when she's in London in 1886, asks her friend, Henry James, who's also Sargent's friend, to introduce her to him with the insistence that she get to see the famous Madame X in person in Sargent's studio. They have a brief interaction there. And then about a year later, uh, she commissioned Sargent to create that portrait that you're discussing. So this is in 1888. At this point, Gardner is 48 years old. And this is really the first I mean, she's an early patron for Sargent. He's not yet the principal American portraitist. And it's her first really public depiction of herself. It's so funny because even in the papers as early as 1891, people are complaining that there are no pictures of her available. And we know that the two of them work on the portrait, which today is in our Gothic room in the museum, for about two months of sittings, going back and forth, negotiating things like pose and background. And she really comes out of it looking like an American icon of sorts. She's It seems to fuse all sorts of her interests in different religions, whether it's Buddhism or Catholicism, and it's herself as kind of powerful saint. And so for all that power in the first portrait and confidence, what I think is so touching is because they remained friends after those sittings in 1888, you know, they would see each other regularly, Sargent. Actually painted in the Gardner stayed at the Gardner Museum in 1903, and he was one of the only people who she let see her after she had had a stroke in 1919. And not only did she decide to let to trust Sergeant enough to see her, even though she'd largely withdrawn from even seeing close friends, she lets him paint her exactly what you described, her in white, and it's this touching watercolor that is complete vulnerability. So he was a friend who she trusted to be the person to interpret her power, and also a friend who she trusted to record her at arguably her lowest point. It really speaks volumes.
0: I want to talk about the issue of tragedy in in her life because in reading the biography, it, there it's it's very striking. There are really sort of two moments where that it propels her into what she ultimately did. And you talked a little bit a few minutes ago about one of them. uh, One of the roles, certainly, for a Gilded Age woman was to be a mother. And that didn't happen for her. Can you talk a little bit about those tragedies and what that meant to her?
1: So she and Jack get married in 1860. And we know from basically Gardner tomb burial records that almost exactly five months later, Jack pays for a plot for a stillborn baby. So they've clearly, you know, they she's had a what would seem like a late term miscarriage. She's had pregnancy loss, um, a stillbirth, and we don't know what happens over the following kind of two years. But she does ultimately give birth to a son, John Lowell Gardner III, or Jackie and June of eighteen sixty-three. In the book, there are some kind of beautiful images, some of the most candid images I've ever seen of her kind of standing with Jackie, she looks extremely happy to be his mother. We know that she's thrilled from the family recollections, but then he, he died in March of 1865 from, you know, a childhood disease that, of course, today we would probably treat with antibiotics, and, um, and sadly he passed away. We know that several months later, she seems to have had another fairly late term pregnancy loss, and the doctors make it clear that she probably can't have children. I should say that she and Jack can't have children. And so the recollections at the time, you know, it's all kind of coded in 19th century language, but she's clearly very depressed. She'd actually also lost her sister-in-law right around the same time, who she was very close with, and she falls into a deep depression. And their first trip, she and Jack's first trip abroad, is actually sort of prescribed by the doctors in 1867 to try and and um, and raise her spirits. So... It seems that
0: another tragedy that happened a number of years later actually led to the creation of Fenway Court, her museum. Can you talk a little bit about what happened and what the result for her was of that?
1: Sadly and somewhat unexpectedly, even though he was older, um, Isabella's husband, Jack Gardner, passed away um, in December of 1898. And the two of them, so for the kind of past almost a decade, had been working on building a major art collection, as I said, with uh, largely with her inheritance. And they'd been discussing creating a museum. Isabella was quite passionate about trying to put the museum in their uh, back bay home, so in the, in a neighborhood in, in the center of Boston. And Jack was adamant that they should buy a plot in the Fens and build a purpose-built museum, that they shouldn't try to adapt their home. They should really build a purpose-built museum. And I will say, it seems like Isabella got to make most of the call to put in their married life. But sadly, Jack dies. And basically, six weeks later, she purchased the plot that he wanted and broken ground on a purpose-built museum. Um, and I think, in a way, that's one of the most touching demonstrations of how much she loved him and actually trusted his opinion that she recognized that he was right. And even in his absence, she should do what he had recommended. Um, so yeah. And so she, she gets going, uh, she hired, they had talked to a, uh, architect together and then she ends up working with him on his own, an architect named Bullard Sears, who helps her kind of bring this palace to fruition. Um, she seems to have been a nightmare of a client <laughs> in, well, in the I'm best sure she had poss- her opinions, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. In the best possible way, she knew yeah. exactly what she wanted. And Sears' diary is one of the best accounts we have. We know that she was at the work site every single day that she brought a lunch pail and her dogs to oversee what was happening. And she really insisted on some design elements like we have a glass ceiling over um over the top of the courtyard that Sears thought was impossible and she thought was absolutely essential. And she was right.
0: So I'm sure she was very hands-on, as they say today, right? Yeah. So this is really important um, and I think really interesting. Can you talk about what her curatorial vision was for this museum? What was her vision for the building, which she called Fenway Court? And what was her vision for how she wanted to display the collection that she'd been uh, accumulating?
1: Yeah. So those who um, aren't familiar with the Gardner Museum might not know that we have a very idiosyncratic installation. Like I said, we have a central courtyard. Uh, the whole museum is built with like embedded architectural details. She not only collected fine arts from abroad, she collected, you know, column ca- the capitals of Collins. She collected windowsills, ceilings, it's all sort of embedded into the museum. And the artwork itself, there are no labels. She really hated the encyclopedic model of museums. We know a little bit about this from her involvement in kind of side picking in a dispute over the future of the plaster cast collection at the MFA Boston. And so everything is arranged um, not by strict geography and time period, but to a certain extent, Each of our galleries is like a room with a kind of feeling, and she sort of would name them. We have a Raphael room, we have a Titian room, we have a Dutch room, but it doesn't mean that in the Dutch room, everything is Dutch, far from it, right? And so she never explained why she installed the museum in this particular way. She never explained why she liked this approach, but it seems to be that she wanted her museum to be evocative and emotional. Um, There are lots of vignettes set up to kind of allow for meditation on a piece. And she didn't want it to be kind of a strictly didactic experience. And I think, honestly, history has proved her correct that museums are experiential. They do best when they are open to whether you're just going to look for beauty or you're going to learn something or just to wander. And that seems to have been her goal, to uh, create an experience with many, many ways in for people rather than just um, one overarching art historical narrative.
0: See, I find that so fascinating because that's a very modern philosophy of curating collections. And you go into museums today, and that's often what you see, whether in special exhibitions, right, or in permanent collections. And she was really revolutionary in in thinking of it. Do, do you agree?
1: Absolutely. I think yeah. she was completely... Um, For someone who is a 19th century person, and I think I mentioned that I thought many people think she's frivolous, I suspect because she created this palace, there's also a little bit of a sense that she's sort of like dowdy or old fashioned, couldn't be further from the truth.
0: Oh, completely. I want to ask you a couple of questions about the uh, collection. What are some of the most important pieces in the collection uh, that we can see today?
1: Oh, gosh. It's quite the list. Um, So we have, we're probably best known for our Renaissance art collection. So we have uh Titian's Rape of Joroba, which is one of the most important Renaissance works. It's massive. In the United States, it was part of a series called The Poesie that he created for the King of Spain. And so that is really an incredible painting. And we know one of her absolute favorites um, from letters that she sent to John Singer Sargent. We also have One of my favorites is a portrait of Edouard Manet's mother that um, she purchased in the beginning of the 20th century. She became increasingly interested in 19th century French art. And it is just an absolute like symphony in black that is right in our blue room on the ground floor, right across from an oil sketch for that famous Madame X portrait that Sargent did. And so she goes out and buys a specific preparatory sketch for it. We have incredible... Uh, Japanese screens that show the tales of Genji, which are some of the finest examples of Japanese of 17th century Japanese screens in the United States. Our Chinese Buddhist Staley, El Haleo, by John, Singer, also by John Singer Sargent, a massive Spanish dance painting from early in his career. Um, it's quite the list. It's hard to choose.
0: That was really an unfair question, sorry, Diana, but I wanted to know what you thought. So, what do you think? For you, are a couple of works that show her personality and character?
1: So I'm not going to necessarily say a particular work, but I will say a particular kind of installation. And so I mentioned um, the Spanish dance painting El Haleo by John Singer Sargent, right? This, this huge image of a flanco dancer that he showed at a major venue called the Paris Salon and that was painted in the wake of some trips that he took to Spain or a trip they took to Spain in 1879. And what I love about that painting and what it says about Gardner is that she actually constructed a space for it before she bought it. She did not own the painting. It was in the collection of kind of a friend, and it was on long-term loan at the MFA Boston. And while she is redoing the museum around 1914, or a part of the museum, I should say, there's a music room she knocks down to create space for more galleries. She creates a gallery called the Spanish Cloister with a big empty space at the end of it. And she convinces the owner to lend El Vallejo to her um, and then convinces him to sell it to her just because she's installed it in this space. And that alone is pretty impressive, but what I think is so telling about how insightful she was is what she puts around El Vallejo is really um, a series of objects that show a very sophisticated understanding of Spain, its complexities and the way that Sargent exoticizes Spain in this painting. So we have the painting. We have a tile from Seville, which is near where kind of Sargent is traveling when he's inspired by the painting. We also have a Murab tile. So an Islamic work of art, which is a nod to um, Spain's Islamic past. The arch that she puts around it looks just like the, um, the arches in the Cordoba Cathedral, which actually had been a mosque. And as if that were not enough. Along the walls, she ends up in small, installing these talavera tiles, which are created in Mexico in the 16th century under Spanish colonial rule and are kind of a really interesting hybrid objects between sort of Spanish empire and indigenous agency in Mexico. And so it's a really complex understanding of Spain that she's giving to us. And, you know, I think 100 years before other museums are starting to create installations that unpack our understanding of a certain geographic place. Um, so it's pretty awesome. It's
0: one of my favorite places uh, in the whole Museum.
1: Now, in looking at her life,
0: in reading the work that you and, and Nat just did, some people may want to immediately characterize her as a progressive or even go as far as to call her a feminist because she broke so many of society's accepted norms. Would you call her that?
1: I wouldn't. I don't think she's um, a kind of straightforward feminist hero. You know, I think we sort of want her to be that, but she's very careful not to express many political views at all. She's friends with lots of suffragettes, but she is not herself a suffragette. And I really think she viewed the museum as her principal civic project and her principal cause. And so she's sometimes conservative. She sometimes has the biases that you would expect of kind of a wealthy white 19th century woman. And then occasionally we have these glimpses of a certain progressiveness. I will say the one area where we have a decent understanding of her views is around immigration. Um, And we know this because her nephew, who she'd actually helped raise since since he was um, a young man or a young boy and when his parents had passed away, was running for Congress or was in Congress. um, And he had quite... Recently strong anti-immigration views that were actually in line with his father-in-law, who was a famous senator from Massachusetts. And his challenger was her friend, uh, a man named A. Pyatt Andrew. So one of Gardner's friends and Pyatt is very pro-immigration. He's not for all these kind of early 20th century restrictive immigration laws. And in this, in this race, she supports her friend over her beloved nephew. And so there is this moment where you see that. She's supporting someone at the expense of kind of family harmony over an issue that she clearly cares about. So there are glimpses, but yeah, can't really can't really characterize her in a straightforward way.
0: Isabella died in July of 1924. Can you talk about the rather curious stipulations of her will that actually affect the museum even today?
1: I think uh Isabella Stewart Gardner's will is one of the most revolutionary things about her. So when she passes away, there are a couple of different clauses or things that go into effect as a result of the will. The most, well, I'd say there are kind of two really important ones. The first one is that while the museum had been called Fenway Court during her lifetime, with the, with the will, it becomes clear that she's actually incorporated as the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And so there's a name change, which um, forces us to talk about her forever, <laughs> which is kind of incredible. And the second thing, which we're probably most famous for, is we're not allowed to make permanent changes to the museum. So basically, the rooms, as they were at the time of her death, The installations are not meant to be altered permanently. And so we don't. Things are installed as she had them. We do take things down occasionally for conservation, to do loans for exhibitions. But the galleries are as they were when she installed them. She was very mistrustful of museum trustees. She had seen some sort of meddling across the way at the MFA Boston. And so she created a model that prioritized her own vision and the stability of that vision. Um, But also I should say, did some really radical things around museum management. So it we have a very, she forced fiscal conservatism. She saved enough money to create endowment. The structure is such that the trustees really are forced to be stewards and have to not totally defer, but there's sort of a strong director model, which empowers museum professionals. It's quite an exceptional document. The other thing I'll say, There are two, I have two kind of favorite moments in the will. One is how it ends, which is that it is, or one is a phrase, which is great, which is for the enjoyment of the public forever. So she really did have a public in mind when she passes away and she wants the museum to be there in perpetuity for a public. But the second quirk that I really love is we actually have to hold, as per the will, an Anglican mass, basically an Anglican uh, service hosted by particular or done by particular brothers on her birthday, on the anniversary of her birthday every year. And that's one of the conditions. And if we're found in violation of that or of changing the installations or anything else, we're supposed to sell everything and give the money to Harvard. Rista, <laughs> so I think we can all agree Harvard doesn't need the money. But anyway. Right. Fine. But you've, but yeah. you've
0: upheld we everything have. she asked for. I think that's extraordinary. Yeah. So So, Diana, for my last question, I want to ask you something that has really become sort of a a trademark question here on The Gilded Gentleman, particularly when we're talking about people that are as complex and, and fascinating as Isabella Stewart Gardner. And that is, if she were sitting here with us right now, right at this table, having a cup of tea, what's the most important question that you would want to ask her. What would you want to know from her directly?
1: I would want to know why, really completely, why she installed the museum the way she did. You know, I'm a curator responsible for her collection, and I think I wish I had a little bit more understanding of her, the end goal of her curatorial vision. I think I can conjecture pretty well But I'd really love to know that because then that would help me do my job to make sure our visitors are getting out of the experience exactly what she wanted them to get out of it. Although I have the feeling she would evade the question and be specifically um, unclear and leave me in the dark, even if she were sitting and having tea across from me.
0: Well, but it's worth asking, right? With anybody, it's worth asking. and. If someone is encountering Isabella Stewart Gardner for the first time via this podcast or they know only a little bit about her, what's the one thing you would want everyone to know about her?
1: She was a pathbreaker. You know, she was a force to be reckoned with. As I said, she was not frivolous. She was serious and created an incredible institution. And that's the one thing I would want people to take away.
0: Diana, there is so much more we could keep discussing, but I just thank you so very much for joining me today to offer your perspective on this incredibly fascinating woman. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a total pleasure.
0: And to my listeners, please pay a visit to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum when you are next in Boston or visit them online at GardnerMuseum.org. And read for yourself Diana and Nat's new biography, Isabella Stewart Gardner, A Life. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite you to join the show as a patron on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me in a very real way to manage the costs of research, writing, and recording the show. I could not do it without you. I'll see you soon. What's life? without a little glint of gold.